This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Right now, though, we get an opportunity to talk weather. Do you like what you're feeling today? It's above zero. There is a guy walking down Wellington. He does have his hood up, so eh, it's it's warm, but it's it's not quite there. So what are we seeing overall? Well, our good friend Anthony Farnell is about to tell us. Of course, Anthony is the chief meteorologist with Global News, and he joins us by magic. Anthony, how are things? <laughs> I am uh, doing well. It has been uh, a busy start to this uh, early winter. And, of course, the snow, the lake effect, the wind chills all playing a role in this first half of November. And uh, it, thankfully, it is easing off a little bit now. That's good. So we're seeing a little bit of a warming trend. You've been able to look at some kind of longer range models. What are you seeing when you take a look at what we could be in for over the next couple of months? Yeah, well, that that really is uh, the the big question everybody has. Is this the start of things? Are we into winter now, or are we going to get a few weeks where it actually goes above normal? And and that's what I'm leaning towards right now. I'm thinking that uh, the second half of November, we're at or above seasonal, so that is a far cry from the record cold we've seen for the first half of the month. And then even December, I think, is going to start off rather mild, and that month could be at normal or maybe above of course, the bad news is that uh, I think once we get to Christmas and then through January, February, likely March and even April, uh, we are going to get uh, quite a bit of cold and snow in here. And this is one of the colder and snowier winters that, that I predicted since I, I started doing this over a decade ago. I know we can't, but we should probably want to ignore the fact that you just included April in that list of months. That That's a long way into <laughs> yeah. spring, it seems. Uh, yeah, and that is something that uh, our confidence is growing on that. One of the main reasons is just that's been the trend lately. There have been several Aprils where we've had not just uh, cold, but snow as well, and it, it seems to linger. So that's something we're watching. We're, we're, we're looking at the big picture. But, yeah, this scene seems like the seasons may, may extend into, into spring. We're talking with the chief meteorologist with Global News, Anthony Farnell. So, okay, let, let's recap. Second half of November at or above season. December starts out not too bad and then if you're dreaming of a white Christmas sounds like we'll probably get that and that will just continue on Anthony take us behind the scenes if you could how do you possibly look at models that can factor in especially in a country like Canada what the weather might be like going as far ahead as April yeah, and there are different models that we look at. There are our day-to-day, our short-term and medium-term forecast models, and uh, the Canadian government has one. The U.S. has a few. Uh, European model has been very reliable over the past few years. So we look at those for, for our seven-day forecast or, or the phone app that you would see uh, the weather for tomorrow and, t- and the next day. That's something that our short-term models handle. When we start talking big picture, longer-term months out in advance, obviously um, the accuracy the the reliability isn't quite there yet, although we've made big improvements over the years. But there are these seasonal models that uh, that we do rely on, and when they start to converge, that's when our confidence goes up. And we also look at ocean temperatures. There's so much of the planet that's covered by oceans. 
So obviously those uh, ocean waters and the temperature that they are uh, can give us hints at what we're going to expect uh, here in, in the months ahead. And I know uh, a lot of your listeners have heard of El Nino and even La Nina. That's something we're, we're watching. And also this big warm blob that uh, was a precursor to the really cold polar vortex winters a few years ago. And that's something we're seeing return with a vengeance this year. Really? So warm blob can try warm blob should translate to tropical weather warm blob translates to sometimes cold weather yeah well that it's uh, all about positioning and the fact that it is in the northwestern uh, pacific it will translate to very mild air for places like maybe uh, coastal bc all the way up towards alaska and uh, that's where the big ridge sets up but oftentimes uh, the Global weather, it's, it is a global jet stream that we look at. So when you get these ridges popping up where they shouldn't be, well, you look for troughs and, and Arctic air also coming a little bit further south and, and that falls across uh, the eastern half of North America. So that's, that's where we see it right now. Okay. The chief meteorologist for Global News joining us, Anthony Farnell. One last thing, Anthony, you mentioned that we could be seeing wintry type stuff into April. Do we know whether it's going to be a, a rocky winter in terms of a lot of storms or could this be a, hey, here it comes? and it gets cold enough and stays for a while. Yeah, I, I do think it will stay for a while. And this could go extreme, at least for a week or two, depending on where these patterns lock in. And that's something that uh, also has become uh, a common occurrence in recent years. We get these locks, these big blocks over the, over the poles, and it's basically uh, extreme weather in many different parts of the world. The verdict is still out, whether this is uh, human-induced climate change and all of that. But that's something that, that we are looking at uh, again this year. And if that happens to to arrive the cold when the lakes are still completely clear of ice we could be dealing with some big lake effect snow events and yes an active storm track and the widespread snows i think will be quite common this year and we already saw one of those systems and i think there'll be more anthony thank you for the warning please keep up the great work even if it does bring us cold temperatures we will try not to blame (laughs) you too much it's better to know. That's always uh, my my motto. Well said. All right, thanks a lot. <laughs> Take care. That is Anthony Farnell, Global News Chief Meteorologist. Don't blame him. He's, he only reads, and, you know, it, it's like, don't kill the messenger. The messenger's trying to help you out. The messenger's telling you what's happening. Don't hurt the messenger. And, unfortunately, we could be in for a wintry winter that lasts into April. This stuff could stick around according to the models that they're looking at, and Anthony gave us that behind the scenes. But for right now, second half of November, early December, we get to enjoy a little milder temperatures. Did you not find on the weekend was one of those days already? Normally we have to wait until February, probably because we don't wind up having you know, wintry weather in this neck of the woods too often in the early part of November. But the weekend had that one moment where did you walk outside on Saturday and think, wow, it's really nice out. Usually that happens in February. You get that one zero degree day and you walk outside and you go, I don't even need a coat. And it's zero. And then when it gets to be like 14 degrees in the summer, you go, it's freezing. This is a, it's freezing. Zero degrees, and it felt fantastic. So we did get that, and it doesn't feel too bad out there today.
We're going to talk some education because we've got a work-to-rule campaign that we know is set to start among elementary teachers on November 26th. Now, what they have said, and I find this as ambiguous as ever, is what they're going to target is school board administrative tasks or ministry tasks. So I don't know what that is. That this is not going to affect student learning. Okay, that's good. And el- the elementary school level, early on, there isn't really a, a big deal if you're not affecting student learning. But I wonder, does this incorporate clubs? Does it incorporate after-school activities and after-school sports? Things like that. And I don't feel that that has been clarified. I don't know whether that would fall under ministry and school board administrative tasks. Would it be report cards? You know, you really, as a parent, and I understand that negotiations go on and that teachers really don't always enjoy the report card way of doing things, but when you look at at the information on your child, in having gone through it as a parent, I find it really hard when they're in elementary school to get a good early read on how your child is doing because the progress report doesn't get it done. And I really missed that first report card. At least I did. So I don't know whether that, I don't know what the administrative tasks are. You know, the the thing that they're trying to say is it won't affect student learning because that's what parents care about. And in work to rule, you got to be careful. It's a tightrope because if you tick off the parents, all of a sudden they're not going to be on your side. So this is a big fight. It's an absolutely massive fight fight and it's one that i think we need some some good insight on and we have found some of that right now with a man who is from london and a graduate of western university and he's a journalist an author a politician and has had some really good thoughts on what's playing out in the world of education right now please welcome randall denley to london live randall how are things today very good Let's kind of look at what you perceive to be the situation here. Now that we have more strike votes that have been made public, what do you see coming at us? Well, I see a lot more pressure coming from the the various teaching unions, obviously stepping it up. It's no surprise that they're favoring a strike vote now. It doesn't mean they're going to do it, but it's the next step in the pressure. I think what's interesting today was the... Uh, response ahead of the OSS TF vote by the education minister Stephen Lecce who said, "Look, let's let's go to mediation. You know, we've agreed on a lot of things, and some things we haven't agreed on. Let us go to mediation." And Lecce's line throughout all this is to seem very reasonable to the public. He wants a deal. He's not confrontational. He just wants to get it done, keep the kids in school. I think that's a very strong angle for the government to take. You know, let the other side uh, do the provocation if that's their intention. But you know, don't don't get the government all wound up and uh, make the fight any worse than it is. Ultimately, what do you see as being the government's goal in this? Is it simply about money, or is it making a better system? Well, I think it's both. But the things that are really in dispute in the uh, at the table are things to do with money. Ultimately, they want to make class sizes somewhat larger, certainly not. As large as they'd originally indicated, they talked about increasing the class size in secondary school by six kids, and they said, well, how about three? So they're certainly prepared to compromise on that. And really, you know, it's a way to try to constrain 
education costs, which they have to do. They've been bringing the deficit down, but it's still substantial. So they need to do something about education because it's the second biggest expenditure area. So you can't just ignore it. You can't just say to the teachers, union as well, well, what do you want? Okay, take that. And the, the teachers unions would have us believe that, you know, really it's all about the kids. If classes are, you know, three students larger on average, it'll be a disaster. It'll be horrible. Okay, well, well what about the money? Well, yeah, it's not about the money. So the government passed legislation and said, okay, we're, we're going to restrict all the public sector agreements to 1%. QP educational workers have already accepted that. But that's uh, not suitable to any of the teaching unions, apparently. So that tells me that, okay, it's about money. They're not going to take a small raise. They want a larger raise. So it's, it's always difficult to pull these things apart. I think the government's doing a lot of other positive things in education, particularly in regard to trying to improve kids' math scores and trying to focus more on high school education that leads to work. So there's a lot of good stuff happening there, but, of course, they've got to get a deal with the unions, and it's never easy. It's never been easy for any government going back more than 20 years. We're talking right now with Randall Denley. Randall is a Canadian journalist, an author, politician, born in London, went to Western University. Now, in terms of, of where this could play out, obviously the strike votes are there. How closely do you believe the unions are hanging on to those strike votes to say, okay, yeah, we we got to do this? Well, I... I don't think they're going to be in a big hurry to actually walk off the job because then you start losing money and union funds start draining out to compensate their members. A much more likely next step is a, a work to rule, and we're already seeing that with uh, elementary school teachers. It's, it's surprising uh, how dissimilar the contract is from a teacher's real job. The contract pretty much says, show up to school, teach kids in class, and that's it. So when they start cutting back on stuff, that's all they do. Any sort of administrative work that's not clearly spelled out, no, nah, we're not going to do any of that. Some of this math stuff, the province wants to change, no, nah, we're not doing that. Professional activity days, well, we're not going to any, any activities organized by the school boards. It just lets them do a lot of stuff that hurts kids and puts pressure on the government. I don't think it's right. Myself, you know, in the past, we've seen one of the biggest things they've done is say, oh, no more extracurriculars. All right, no school teams, plays, all that kind of stuff. We'll just stop doing it. You know, it's not spelled out in the contract that they have to do it, but it's always been part of what people expect some teachers to step up and do. And it makes life, school life, a lot worse for kids when they don't do it. So I suspect that'll be the next step they go to if they don't get what they want. And, you know, the government, to me, is prepared to meet them in the middle somewhere, but they're not prepared to just say, here's a blank contract, fill it in. And the unions are somewhat used to that, especially under the wing government, which gave them pretty much anything they asked for just to keep them on side. didn't work either, but it cost us a lot of money. You mentioned the contract, and it's a really interesting thing that it isn't spelled out very clearly. And a lot of teachers will raise this, saying, no, no, the job description is not spelled out clearly. How have we gone through so many negotiations going back so many years and not had that rectified? Because the unions are wonderfully happy with it, just as it is, because it lets them use this work to roll, which doesn't take a penny out of their members' pockets. I mean, not to be cynical, but let them go to work, collect a full salary, do less work than they normally do. That's not a losing thing for an individual member. So 
they love to have that. You know, I think if you go back enough decades, you'd probably find a world where school boards as the employers then thought, well, we don't need to spell all that out because teachers know it's just part of the job. And I can pretty much guarantee you if any would-be teacher now showed up for his first interview and said, okay, I want to be a teacher, but let me be clear up front. I'm going to come in at the very last possible minute when the bell rings. I'm going to teach my kids in the classroom, and then I'm going home. And any other administrative stuff, I won't do it. Any after-school stuff, I won't do it. I'm going to do exactly what the contract compels me to do. No doubt the employer would say, okay, uh, yeah, thanks for coming in. I think we'll be looking at somebody else. <laughs> so it's certainly not the expectation when teachers get hired that that's all they're going to do. It's not what they do do when they're under a contract, but it's what they choose to do to put pressure on the government. And it's all about putting pressure on the government, pressure on parents, so that they'll put pressure on the government, get them to fold. And over what, really? I mean, what are the teachers offering? I'd be interested to know that would say, okay, well, the government's trying to save some money. We don't like three more students in a secondary school class. What would we suggest instead? I thought it was interesting when you uh, looked at the application of the first little bit of this in the Toronto District School Board, which can never balance this budget. One of the first things they did was get rid of a whole bunch of principals, not of schools, but principals who worked in the central office. And that's one of the things the government's trying to accomplish with this, is to get school boards not necessarily to make classes bigger, but to look at where the money goes and say, if we want to get them smaller, is there something else we could cut back? Yeah, which there clearly is in a lot of school boards. Mm-hmm. We're talking right now with Randall Denley, who is a journalist, author, politician from London, graduated from Western University. Randall, whenever there is some kind of situation like this where we have strike votes being taken, where we have uh, the potential for a strike or the potential for a work to rule, we always hear two words thrown around. And those two words are essential service. And the debate begins as to whether or not teachers should be an essential service. How do you feel about that? I don't think that would be wrong. And if we didn't have schools, people would think that would be a pretty amazing turn of events, which tells me it's probably an essential service. Our kids have got to be educated. And it's not just the education, but it's the the pressure that's creates on parents. If teachers say, well, all right, we're walking out. You know, suddenly parents' lives, especially if younger children, are thrown into, into chaos. Well, what am I going to do with my kids all day? So it's a big disruption that ripples right out through the economy as people say, okay, suddenly uh, there's no teachers in the school. I've got to stay home after my kid. I can't come into work today. In that sense, too, I think it's it's essential because we count on schools to not just educate our kids but to look after them all day long, and that's an important function as well. So it would be seen as a drastic step, but I think it would probably be a useful one. I don't think either side has been really willing to relinquish the ability to negotiate, though, because once you get into essential service, then somebody else is going to decide what the deal is. So from government's perspective, a bit of a concern there, I think. Mm -hmm. And I guess as a final note, is there anything else that you see playing out that we need to know about in order to kind of be ready for it before it happens? Well, I think people just need to step back and look at the big picture and try to assess who's being reasonable and who's being unreasonable. You know, it's great to talk about cuts, cuts to this and that, but what did people think was going to happen when they 
elected the PC government last year to clean up the deficit mess created by the liberals, there's obviously going to have to be expenditure restraint on something. So they're trying to run education a bit more cost-effectively, which is not out of line with what's happening in other provinces, too. Our administrative expenses in education in Ontario are substantially higher than elsewhere. So they've got to put pressure on the system in some way, or you just say, okay, well, we give up. It's just going to keep spiraling upwards. I don't think that's responsible for government to do that. And I think individual teachers need to ask themselves, well, are we professionals? Are we blue-collar union folks who just do exactly what's in the contract? Because if we're professionals, we shouldn't stop doing all those things that we know are part of our jobs. I love the way you've spelled that out. Randall, thank you so much for the time and the insight. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care. Yeah, I I love that. I love the way that Randall just spelled that out. Are you a professional? Because teachers should be. I believe they are. I've encountered very few teachers that I would look at and go, I don't want you teaching my kid. And it's happened for, you know, for the entire year where it's, man, got a dud. And that does happen. But it doesn't happen very often. I would say not very often. Maybe once for both of my kids throughout their entire academic careers. And they're older now. So it doesn't happen very often. But, yeah, are you a professional or are you just doing what the contract says. Because if you're a professional, then you look at things differently. And we know that the teachers have very powerful unions. Very powerful unions. We would love to have Shark Week on London Live. But seriously, how could you listen to me talk about sharks for two hours a day, for an entire week, without any pictures of sharks. I could sit here and say, wow, this one has really big teeth. And this one can jump really high out of the water. This one is man's most feared predator. I could say things like that. I don't even know if any of that's true. But it just, it wouldn't translate. However, instead of Shark Week, we can have Shark 10 Minutes. Because there is a shark story that we need to cover on London Live. It has a connection to Western University, therefore a connection to London. And that connection just happens to be Dr. Paul Mensink, who joins us on the phone. Dr. Mensink, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Okay, let's talk a little bit about sharks. First off, what is your connection to sharks? Yes, so uh, I am in the Department of Biology in the Center for Environment Sustainability uh, here at Western, and I work with a team of researchers from Queen's University, Belfast, who work on big basking sharks. I liked your description before of the of the photo of, of the basking shark. These guys are our second largest sharks that we have, second largest fish just behind the whale shark. Now, when we go to picture a basking shark, does it look like a a great white? Does it look completely different? What would you say? Yeah, you've got it dead on there. Essentially, they're cousins of the great white. So they're lamniform sharks. So we also call them mackerel sharks. They look, if you look at a basking shark, it looks very similar in form and morphology and how it looks to a great white. And actually... It's much, much bigger. Uh, 
a great white would be about 40% of the size of a basking shark. Um, luckily, though, basking sharks are filter feeders, so um, they just feed on small plankton that they find uh, in the water column. They're not jumping up out of boats and having movies made about them. Well, actually, that's an interesting point. They do uh, breach out of the water, and they can do this in groups. And when they get into groups, they can breach repeatedly over and over. Um, they can actually be faster than a great white when they're going to breach. And their size, their maximum length is about 15 meters, about the size of a city bus. Uh, so you can imagine sort of a city bus flying out of the water <laughs> would still be uh, intimidating. Now, Dr. Mensing, we had National Geographic name the basking shark one of the world's weirdest animals. Why did it do that? It is just, it is a funky-looking shark, I think. So as I said, it kind of looks like a uh, great white, but it has a big, long nose on the front of it. So, um, And when it opens up its mouth, it's like it's a huge gaping mouth that it opens up, and you can see the support structures that are sort of inside of its mouth. So it it, it looks like it's got a huge sort of uh, balloon on the front of it when it opens up its mouth to filter feed, and that's because it's trying to feed on these little animals that are in the ocean, little zooplankton, little things like shrimp. So it, so it swims around? Like a very weird animal. Yeah, it swims around with an open mouth? Well, it doesn't do that all the time because you can imagine this would be extremely uh, costly energy-wise to just swim around with your mouth open all the time. So what they do is they pick and choose when they start to feed as they're going through the water to try and maximize how much food they can get. They're actually called basking sharks because we see them a lot at the surface. And so the idea is that they're sort of basking themselves, um, but normally that's because they're actually feeding on what's in the water column. So we see them a lot at the surface um, when they're feeding. We are in the middle of Shark 10 Minutes, because it's not Shark Week, is Shark 10 Minutes. We don't have the pictures to go along with what you need for sharks, but we're talking with Dr. Paul Mensink, who is an assistant professor in marine ecology and educational technology at Western University. So we've outlined what a basking shark is. Let's talk about why we need to know about this shark. What's happening with it? Yeah, well, it's very interesting. Canada has a very interesting history with the basking sharks. So they were actually considered to be pests uh, on the Pacific coast. And during the 1940s and 50s, there was actually a government, a bit of an infamous government program to eliminate basking sharks because they were in such conflict with uh, fishermen. So they would get tangled up in the nets or they would collide with the boats. So there was actually a program to put blades on the front of boats and try and impale the shark uh, to try and eliminate the species from the Pacific coast. No way. That is nasty. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually so um, luckily our thinking has changed a lot about that. And they're now classified as endangered uh, on the Pacific coast. And so there's efforts there and they're protected under the Species at Risk Act. There's efforts to try and improve the populations there. On the Atlantic coast, we're in a bit of better shape, but we still have uh, issues such as boat strikes, which um, can reduce the species numbers. Now, with the basking shark, with the, the lower numbers, you're studying these and, and you're able to put a transmitter on a basking shark. How do you exactly get a transmitter on a shark the size of a city bus? 
Yeah, it's quite interesting. So this is all being sort of led and head up by um, a PhD student that was at Queen's University of Belfast, Emmett Johnston, um, and my other team members, um, Dr. John Houghton and Paul Mayo. And essentially, Emmett sort of goes out on a boat. Amazingly, they, he's able to pull the boat up alongside the shark, and then they're able to put a tag. It kind of works like uh, a little T-bar that you would think would go into your clothing. works the same way into the shark. Uh, shark skin, and that eventually comes out later on. But that is a uh, way that attaches that sort of satellite transmitter to the shark, and then we can find out things like where does the shark go, how often is it there, and think about things and what depth the shark stays at. And what have you learned so far? So the the really interesting thing about uh, these bass and sharks is they appear to kind of have these seasonal hot spots. Some of those around Ireland and Scotland, and we also have some of those in the Bay of Fundy in Canada. We never really thought that they crossed in between those hot spots very often, but our latest paper um, shows that we can get sharks moving from those endangered northeast Atlantic populations around Ireland and Scotland coming over to populations um, off the coast of North America. And this is only the second time that this was picked up. And it was picked up because there was somebody, an underwater videographer actually was able to take a video of the shark with the tag attached. So wait a minute. You're, you're finding out that a shark that was living happily in and around Ireland in the Atlantic Ocean there is swimming across the Atlantic Ocean toward Newfoundland? Yes, absolutely. And so um, it was almost about three years later that after the, the tag was put on that it was uh, then recited for this shark. And that's really a sort of a straight line displacement. So from A to B of about 4,600 kilometers. So these are huge distances. And these sharks, um, the more and more we learn about them, the more we realize how much they travel around the ocean. And we're starting to see that for other sharks that they're related to, things like Poor beagle sharks were also starting to detect that they're moving across the Atlantic much more than we originally thought. That's wild because you wouldn't think that that would be a, a thing to do. That's, that's, a, that's a rather large playground to be in. Do they find enough food on the way? It's a long, long distance. And one of the things we don't, we don't have enough information to know maybe what would motivate them to go across the Atlantic. Oftentimes, they may go sort of north and south on either side of the Atlantic to, um, to in search of food or potentially temper- different temperatures. But to make these big um, crossings, we're not exactly sure why that happens. And it could be that they're chasing little patches of those zooplankton I was talking about, or it could be more directed efforts crossing, uh, crossing the ocean. That's absolutely wild. Okay, so where does your research take you from here? Do you just keep watching what these sharks are up to? Do we need more years? Well, the, luckily there is a large uh, over 4 million euro project uh, called Sea Monitor, uh, which is running um, out of Northern Ireland there. And there's multiple, there's Canadian partners on that, including myself. Uh, we are going to be putting satellite transmitters on a lot of these different sharks um, and trying to see, try and gather some more information about where they're going. And this has kind of impl- implications for how we set up things like conservation strategies. So understanding that these sharks are actually moving across the Atlantic means we can't just have a Canadian strategy or an Irish strategy. needs to be more of a kind of a global ocean approach to try and save this species.
That's pretty cool. Well, we wish you the very best of luck in doing this because it's fascinating to know that we've got creatures that will go from one end of the ocean to the other in the Atlantic. Dr. Mansink, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, thank you. It's lovely being on for Shark 10 Minutes. You should make this a regular segment. <laughs> if, we, if, you're going, if you're game for it, I'd love to talk about another shark uh, sometime in the very near future. Let's do it. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. All right. Take care. It is not Shark Week. It was Shark 10 Minutes. And Dr. Paul Mensink, talking about research, Dr. Mensink is at Western University, so there's a London connection to this. But finding out that this shark that's the size of a city bus that was hanging out in and around Ireland, all of a sudden then decides to swim across the entire Atlantic Ocean. Not in a straight line either, as Dr. Mensink pointed out. Kind of this way and that way a little bit. And may have been following plankton, they don't know, but winds up heading toward Newfoundland across the entire ocean. Man. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.